And please turn to Romans chapter 11, to Romans chapter 11. I'd like us to read, follow with me please as I read, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Paul has just been writing of how the Jews as a whole, as a corporate body, as a nation, rejected Messiah, rejected the gospel of grace, and how even while they rejected him many times in the past, God, according to verse 21 of chapter 10, was always spreading out his hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Now in chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, did God cast off his people? God forbid, for I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God did not cast off his people, which he foreknew. Or know you not what the scripture saith of Elijah, <clears throat> how he pleaded with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they have digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. And what said the answer of God unto him? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. But, but if it is by grace, it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. What then? That which Israel seeketh for, that he obtained not. But the election obtained it, and the rest were hardened. According as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear unto this very day. And David saith, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow thou down their back always. Let me just take a moment to review what we've considered and set the context for chapter 11. As has been said before, these chapters, chapter 9, 10, and 11, are all one unit, and it is virtually impossible to understand properly any one section without keeping that section in the overall flow of this passage. So let me just take this moment for, re re for review. In these three chapters, God is dealing with his relationship to the Jews and to the Gentiles, and secondarily, he is concerned with the relationship of the Jews and the Gentiles to one another. He is concerned with addressing this issue. How is it that the Jews, being this, the privileged, elect, chosen people of God, how could it be that they, now at his point in history, at Paul's point in history, how is it that such ones could now be apostate? How is it that such ones could have rejected Messiah and now be hardened? In chapter 9, he addresses that issue from the standpoint of God's sovereignty. He addresses that issue from the standpoint of election, that God has chosen only some of them, and all that God has chosen are indeed believing. But he has not chosen them all, and so they're not all believing. And then at the end of chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, on through chapter 10, he takes up this same question from a different perspective. And he says the reason that this group could be apostate is because of their own problems. It is because of their own responsibility. It is because of their own choice. It is because they rejected Messiah. They would not receive the gospel of grace. They would not accept that method of justification through faith in Jesus Christ. 
They were determined to try and save themselves on the basis of their own conduct before God's law. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, in the light of their apostasy, Paul deals with the question, did God's word fail? All of God's promises to Israel, have they now come to nothing? Later in chapter 9, he addresses the issue of, of their election, that God only elected some. He says, is God unfair? Is it, not, is it unfair that God would choose only some and not all? And now in chapter 11 and verse 1, he addresses another question. In the light of their apostasy, in the light of God's sovereign choices, in the light of their determination to resist Messiah, he asks now a third question, and that is, did God cast off his people? And all of chapter 11, except the very last part, is devoted to answering that question. Did God cast off his people? In the light of his election, in the light of their apostasy and rejection of Messiah, did God cast them off? And he gives what could roughly be considered a twofold answer. In verses 1 through 10, he says, absolutely not. God did not reject them totally. He is presently saving a remnant. And in chapter 11, verses 11 through following, he answers the same question, absolutely not. God has not forsaken his people. Not only has he not forsaken them totally in that he's dealing with a remnant, he has in the second place not forsaken them finally because there's a day coming when he will again restore Israel to a place of blessing and to a place of grace. Now this morning, I would like us to consider these first 10 verses, God willing, if our time, if we are able to put it into this time frame. I'd like us first to consider the question and then for us to consider the answer and then to consider some practical reminders that the Apostle Paul makes and then, God willing, to consider some applications from this passage. So first, then, look at the question. Romans 11, chapter 1. Did God cast off his people? Now, that might sound like a simple question just to read it, but the fact is there's a lot of discussion about what that question means. Who are his people in this passage is what the question revolves around. There are many of God-fearing people whose who we would greatly respect, who have different opinions about what that means. Some would say the phrase, his people, refers to the remnant, not to the whole nation of Israel, but to the, those who are elected unto personal salvation from among the nation of Israel. So the question then, has God forsaken his remnant? Others would say the, the phrase, his people, is referring indeed to the corporate body of Jews, to the nation of Israel, not with regard to whether per, each individual is personally saved or not, but to the corporate body as a whole. I believe that the Apostle Paul is referring in this place to Israel as a corporate body. He is not referring to the remnant. He is not referring to the elect within Israel. He is not referring to every Israelite as an individual, but to the entire race as a corporate body. I'd like to give you my reasons for that, and I trust this will not be a mere academic exercise. There's a great deal of, of, of biblical implication that rests on a proper understanding of this passage. It is true, I don't know exactly all of your minds as I say this, but I do know in a general sense that it is true that there is a great deal of heat that is often... Uh, generated by the consideration of this passage. There's a lot of misunderstanding about this passage. Many people come 
Perhaps none of us are able to not come, but many come with prejudices and preconceived ideas when they come to this passage. So if you have a different opinion than this, then I just beg you to be Berean and to listen with a ready mind and to go home, take your notes now. Don't be the critic now. Listen with a ready mind and go home and be the critic. Go home and consider the scriptures and see indeed if these things are so. There are two reasons why I believe that his people in this question refer to the corporate body of Jews. The first reason is this, simply that many other passages of scripture refer to the entire nation as God's chosen people whom he will not cast off in a permanent manner. Many scriptures, perhaps the majority of scriptures that refer to his people, to Israel, are in reference to them as a corporate body, not in reference to them as elected unto personal salvation, but as a corporate body being God's people that he will never in a permanent manner cast off. Look quickly in the book of Deuteronomy. Because our time is short, I'm going to limit myself just to the book of Deuteronomy for three passages that establish this point. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. You remember the context? God has taken his people out of Egypt. They have come out of Egypt, and the adults of the nation disbelieved God. They were not faithful to God. God said he would make them travel around in the, in the desert for 40 years until that generation died off. And when that generation had died off and their children were adults, he would then take those children, those adult children, he would take them into the land of promise. Well, that's the 40 years are up. <clears throat> the people have died off. Their children are now adults. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' statement to those children, those adult children, just before they enter into the land of promise. And he says in verse 20 of chapter 4, But the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be unto himself a people of inheritance as at this day. Look in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. I'm sorry, I meant to remark on that passage that he is referring not only to that generation, but he's referring to the nation. He's referring to the nation who was taken out of the fiery furnace of Egypt. Now, these people were just children when they were in that position. Their parents also were a part of that nation. Those that were faithful, those that were not faithful, all of them as a corporate body were viewed in that text as that inheritance that God had taken out of Egypt. Look in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. Verse 6, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a people for his own possession above all peoples that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people for you were the fewest of all peoples. But the Lord loveth, loveth you and because he would keep the oath which he sware unto your fathers hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondage from the king of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, who keepeth covenant and loving kindness with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God is saying through Moses to the nation as a body, 
that he has chosen them above all the other nations of the earth. He has loved them above all the other nations of the earth. He has not chosen them because they were prestigious or mighty or impressive. He has chosen them simply because he loves them. But again, he's referring to them as a nation. Look in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. In in Deuteronomy chapter 10, again, I'll ask you to study the context of these passages. But in chapter 10, verse 14, Behold, unto the Lord thy God belongeth heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is therein. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all peoples at this day. Again, the same idea. Multitudes of such passages are very easy to find throughout the Old Testament. The Jews as a corporate body were regarded in a corporate way as the elect of God, the chosen of God, the loved of God, the privileged nation among all the nations in the world. Now that sense of privilege and these statements of God's commitment to them as a nation were repeated again and again and again in the context of their apostasy. It's very important that you appreciate this. If God was not committed to them as a nation, when they apostatized, he would have just been done with them. But that's not what you find. Again and again and again in Israel's history, they were unfaithful to the covenant. God did punish them, but he always kept pledging and repledging and repledging his faithfulness to them as a nation. Now look quickly at just three of those passages. First, look in 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is that time at the end of the period of the judges. You remember that once God took his people into the land, that he did not ordain that they would have a king. He would be their king. God would be their king. They would be a unique nation, very different from all the nations of the world, made them very nervous. All the other nations of the world had a king, and that king would raise armies, and he would tax the people to get weapons and horses, and they'd have security in the context of that king with a protective army. Well, God didn't set it up that way. They were in the nation. I mean, they were in the land. No king. God was their king. And after some years of that, with the people being unfaithful, and because they were unfaithful, that arrangement didn't work very well, these carnal people demanded, we've got to have a king like the other nations. God was offended by that because they were, in his words, rejecting him. Well, God gave them a king. But now it's in that context that we find these words in 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel, I'm sorry. My Bible is open to 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 12. And let us begin to read in verse 18. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and Jehovah sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. These people knew their danger. They had rejected God. God was angry with them. They were afraid that God would destroy them. 
And so they're begging Samuel to plead with God, plead with God, that in the light of all of our evils, and now this asking for the king, that God won't destroy us. And Samuel said unto the people, verse 20, Fear not, you have indeed done all this evil. Yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and turn you not aside. For then would you go after vain things which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you a people unto himself. Now they had denied the covenant. They had rejected God, and God is going to deal sternly with them. But he will not forsake them as a people because he has committed himself to that people. He has chosen that people to be his heritage. Look at Psalm 94. And again, this is selective for the sake of time. Psalm number 94 is a more general reference. There is no historical context clearly given to us for Psalm number 94, but it is written at a time of declension in the life of Israel, God is allowing the wicked to triumph. Now look in verses 3 through 5. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? They prate, they speak arrogantly. All the workers of iniquity boast themselves. They break in pieces thy people, O Lord. They afflict thy heritage. Now this was a state of affairs that frequently existed where the people of Israel would not be faithful to God. God would withdraw his protective hand from them. Their enemies, depending on what time frame in history we're talking about, their enemies at that time frame would be allowed to come in and defeat their armies and sometimes even enter into the city and, and damage the temple and do, do harmful deeds to the people because they had sinned, they had rejected God, and God would withhold his blessing from them. Now this righteous man in one of those historical settings is pleading with God, makes reference to this apostasy and to the fruit of God's withdrawing his hand. And now look how he argues in chapter 9, verse 12. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people neither will he forsake his inheritance. Many commentators think Paul is making conscious reference to this passage. His question, will God cast off his people? Absolutely not. Just as in the past when his people apostatized. Just as in the past when God would bring harmful chastening upon his people, he would never forsake them absolutely because he was committed to them. He would not cast them off. And one other passage in the book of Jeremiah and really one of the most powerful passages to bring to bear on this subject in Jeremiah chapter 30. You may be familiar with this passage. Jeremiah writes at a time of great apostasy. There had been other apostasies. This is the great apostasy, at least until Jeremiah's lifetime, until his point in history. The nation as a whole had apostatized, not absolutely in terms of every individual, but almost so. The northern kingdom had long since been taken off into captivity and destroyed as a nation. The southern kingdom had become so disobedient 
that there were altars to pagan gods all over the city. Kings, some of them, sacrificed their baby children to the pagan gods. The nation as a whole, again, not every individual, but as a corporate body, was an apostate nation. And God was finished with them. God had prophesied that he was done with them. The Chaldeans would be raised up. They would come and destroy the city, take everyone away captive, make havoc of the city. God was rejecting his people at that point. It was a great apostasy. And God in his faithfulness was responding with a rejection of, that, of those people. But now look in chapter 30. In chapter 30, among other places, God promises a restoration. He promises that though you have apostatized, though I am against you, I will not absolutely forsake you. I will not cast you off because you are my people. Now, appreciate he's saying this to an apostate people. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 23, Behold, the tempest of the Lord, even his wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest. It shall burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until he have ex executed, until he have performed. The intents of his heart in the latter days you shall understand. Horrible wrath would be poured out upon the people. Chapter 31. At that time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people that were left of the sword found favor in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again will I build thee, and thou shalt be, O virgin Israel. Again shalt thou be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the streets of them that make merry. God loved them with an everlasting love. Even when they were unworthy of love, he loved them. He drew them to himself. They were repeatedly unfaithful to him. He repeatedly dealt with them in anger and wrath. He was doing it at this very time. But he's promising, I have always loved you. I will always love you. I will restore Israel. Now, you must read the whole rest of this passage for yourselves. Let me just break into it at different places. Look in verse 10. Verse 9, he talks about their restoration. He says at the end of verse 9, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O you nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattereth Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. Look at verse 27. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass, like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to overthrow and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, and perhaps you're familiar with the passage. Those two passages make it very clear that the same corporate body that God was determined to inflict wrath and judgments upon, that same corporate body that he had put aside, he as a shepherd would restore. Now, it's in this context, in the succeeding verses, that God declares the new covenant. He declares the new covenant to be made with Israel. Now, in God's great mercy, in God's infinite mercy, he opened up the new covenant to the masses of the world. The Gentiles, we ourselves, have been drawn into that covenant. 
That covenant was inaugurated and guaranteed at the cross. Jesus' blood is the blood of the new covenant. We who, part, who are Gentiles and partake of Abraham's faith, we have been brought into that covenant. But that covenant is designed for Israel. And we, wonderfully, have been brought into it. But the passage is in reference to Israel. Now look again in verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. He goes on, he's making reference to the fact that the new covenant would not be like the covenant that was made through Moses. Now look in verse 35. Thus saith the Lord who giveth the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, who stirreth up the sea so that the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth stretched out beneath, then will I also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. What's the Lord saying? He's saying, I have a commitment to Israel. My commitment to Israel is like my commitment to the moon and the stars and the, and the sun. If my commitment to the moon and the sun and the stars is broken, if I don't keep that ordinance that I've made with the moon and the sun and the stars, then I won't keep my ordinance that I've made with Israel. But unless you see my commitment to the moon and the sun and the stars break, you can believe that my commitment to Israel is equally as fixed. Now, he's saying this to Israel in the time of apostasy. There are lots of passages of these two sorts stating God's commitment to Israel as a nation, restating that commitment to Israel in its apostasy. The greatest apostasy was when the Lord Jesus came, when God was no longer sending his servants, but when he sent his son. The greatest apostasy was not when they rejected Jeremiah or the other prophets. The greatest apostasy was when they rejected his son. You might think, you might justly think that God would at that point be absolutely finished never again to be merciful to Israel. And so Paul asks, did God cast off his people? God forbid. Absolutely not. Just as in all the other apostasies, he did deal hard, harshly with them. He did pour out wrath upon them but he was committed to them. It is unfathomable that he would be committed to them. It is like his commitment to you as an individual elect person. It is unfathomable why he would bear with you. But he has chosen to do so, and he is absolutely faithful to that covenant commitment. So the first thing in this question, has God cast off his people? The first thing for us to consider is who are his people? Who is it that he has promised to not cast off well, this passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 35 through 37, says he will not cast off the seed of Israel, even in their apostasy. The same idea was given in Psalm 94. He will not cast off the corporate nation. Even in times of declension and apostasy, God calls Israel his people and promises he will not cast her off. And in these places... 
God is referring to an apostate nation, not the remnant. There'd be no questions God going to cast off his remnant. That's not, it's not even worth bringing up. The question is, would God cast off these apostates whom he has every right to cast off according to the terms of the covenant? His answer is, God forbid. We're still considering the question. The first thing we considered was, who are the people? Now, the second thing, just briefly to consider... Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I said there are two reasons to, to believe that the people in this passage were the corporate people of Israel. The first was the other passages, the general tenor of the whole Bible on this subject. The second reason for believing that is because of the context of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Please turn back to that passage, please. Romans 9, 10, and 11. The context of these three chapters clearly supports the idea that the term his people refers to the corporate body and not only to those within the nation who are chosen for salvation. Look at several passages. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience bearing with, witness with me in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing pain in my heart. For I could wish that I were anathema from Christ for my brethren's sake, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, whose is the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom is Christ as concerning the flesh. Who's he referring to there? He's not referring to the remnant. He's referring to that body of Jews, the great corporate nation, his kinsmen. He wouldn't have this lament for the remnant. He has this lament for the apostate. He has this lament for those who are outside of believing faith at that moment. That's who he's talking about. He goes on in the succeeding verses to make the contrast of how there is an elect within the elect. There is this great nation that is chosen by God under privilege. And inside that great number of all Jews, there are some Jews, he says, that are elect not to privilege, but elect to salvation. So he deals with the remnant then in several verses that follows. But look again in verse 27. Isaiah crieth concerning Israel. If the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that shall be saved. Look in verse 29. And as Isaiah hath said before, except the Lord of Seboeth had left us a seed, we had become as Sodom and had been like unto Gomorrah. Both of those passages refer to a remnant. But in both of those passages, the us and the nation is the focus. There is a nation that is considered God's people, elect and non-elect. There is a remnant in that nation, but it is the nation that is being discussed in these passages. Look in chapter 10, verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse 3. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. The they and the them is referring to the unbelievers in Israel. Now follow that through. The whole rest of this passage is given to explaining why they are held responsible, the they and the them of Israel that did not believe. There are pointed statements that are given. And the section ends in verse 21 but as to Israel, he saith, all the day long did I spread out my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Now that clearly has reference to the whole nation. That is not a reference to the remnant. That's a reference to the whole nation, most of them being disobedient and gainsaying. Did God cast off his people? 
I mean, that's the flow of the context. The his people in the flow of the context are this gainsaying, disobedient people that were rejecting him throughout the centuries, rejecting him over and over and over. God is like one with his hands extended, inviting this people, this gainsaying people to come. Did God cast off his people? Same people he's referring to in all of these verses. But the point becomes much more clear as you go through chapter 11. Look down in chapter 11, verse 11. I say then, did they, and that's a reference to the unbelieving nation, the corporate nation as unbelievers, did they stumble that they might fall? God forbid. But by their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if their fall is the riches of the world and their loss, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? The theirs that go throughout that passage, the personal pronouns in that passage do not refer to the remnant. The personal pronouns in that passage cannot refer to the remnant because most of the pronouns are referring to them in a point of unbelief. That same corporate body that has fallen into unbelief, that same corporate body is going to be the fullness of them that are later saved. The whole reference is to a corporate people. Look further down in verse 15. For if the casting away, it's interesting how Paul uses the same word here as he did in the, in the question. For if the casting away of them is the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Here's the corporate body of Jews as an unbelieving nation. Temporarily, God casts them off. He hardens them in part. He does that to stir up the Gentiles. He does that to bring the Gentiles in. The Gentiles being converted provoke the Jews to jealousy. And that same body that was cast away as a body is received as a body. It's not that the remnant, a little bit was cast away and a little bit will be taken back. It's that they as a body were put out and they as a body are going to be brought back in. Look in verse 23. And I will not take the time to open up this, this picture of the tree as it, re, as it deserves. I'll have to wait until later. There's this picture of salvation as a great tree. God's salvation is likened unto a great tree. And always until the coming of Christ, the branches of that tree were Jews. They were the ones that were, that were the natural branches of this tree of salvation. God breaks them off. God breaks off those natural branches. As a nation, the Jews are put off. And he grafts in these Gentiles that are unnatural branches. It's like putting apple branches on a plum tree. It's unnatural. God grafts them in. They didn't have any right or reason to be there, but God grafts them in. Now look what he says about that. Verse 23. And they also, if they continue not in their unbelief, shall be grafted in. This is the Jews who have been, have been cut off. They also, if they continue not in their unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wast cut out of that which is by nature a wild olive tree, and wast grafted contrary to nature in a good olive tree, how much more shall these which are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. You see his point? It's, it's such an odd, unnatural thing that God would take these prune branches and graft them into the olive tree. It's such an unnatural thing that God would take these Gentiles who are outside of the covenant's promise and bring them into the tree of God's blessing. It's such an unnatural thing 
that the Jews who were naturally in that tree would be broken off. Isn't it, isn't it likely, isn't it, isn't it most likely that those who have been broken out can be grafted in? If unnatural branches can be put in, isn't it natural that the natural branches can be put back in? But again, the simple point I draw your attention to is that the same them, the same group who were put out, are said later to be brought back. It's not in terms of a mass being put out and then a handful being brought back. The same kind of statement is used in reference to those that are put out and those that are being brought back. Look in chapter 11, verse 25, for I would not, brethren, have you ignorant of this mystery. You appreciate it is a mystery what he's talking about. We have to be careful to have divine revelation to clear this matter up for us. But he says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own conceits, that a hardening in part hath befallen Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, and so all Israel shall be saved. Now, there are a lot of issues that that passage raises, and we'll deal with them when we get to the passage. But notice the simple ideas that lie on the top of the verses. Who has this hardening in part befallen? The nation. The nation, in part, large part, has been hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and then what? So all Israel shall be saved. Israel as a nation was put out, hardened. The Gentiles are being saved, bless God. Finally, all the Jews are going to be saved. Now, don't read that as an absolute statement. I mean, don't read that at all as an absolute statement. But that's, that's the point of the context. The Jews are out, the Gentiles are in. The natural branches are out, the unnatural branches are in. God is doing that to provoke the other group to jealousy so they'll want to come. And he says it in the plainest language, that right now the Jews are out. A hardening in part has befallen the nation. The Gentiles are being saved. Blessed be God. Then all Israel will be saved. Some people use that in, in, in spiritual language, as if all Israel is referring to all the, those who have the faith of, 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 of Abraham. It's a very understandable interpretation. It just doesn't fit the context. The context is referring to this nation that is put out, and this nation that is brought in, this group that is put out, and this group that is brought in. Look further in this passage. Chapter 11, verse 28. As touching the gospel, they... Again, this is not the remnant. As touching the gospel, they the nation of Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Contemplate that. These very ones who at the time of Paul's writing are the enemies of the people of God. These very ones who are the enemies of Paul, they're trying to kill Paul. These very ones who are traveling around after Paul throughout the Roman Empire trying to subvert his preaching. These very ones that are causing havoc and persecution in the Christian church, they who are the enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, they, these same ones, are beloved for the Father's sake. See, it doesn't say that that group in Israel that loves God, that they are the elect, those very ones that are the enemies, the nation as an enemy, is still the elect of God. It's like Jeremiah 30 and 31 the very apostate nation that God is determined to bring his wrath upon is still my beloved, my dear Ephraim. I am still a father to you, pleading with you. 
even as I rebuke you in my fiercest wrath. You go on and read this passage, verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are not repented of. And that passage has to be read along with verse 28. This corporate election, that's what verse 28 is talking about. This corporate election is not repented of. God doesn't change his mind about this corporate election. For the gifts and the calling of God are not repented of. For as you in time past were disobedient to God, but now have obtained mercy by their disobedience, even so have these also now been disobedient, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now obtain mercy. And there's riches in those passages we'll just pass over. But look at verse 32. For God hath shut up all unto disobedience. The all in that context is referring to the hardened nation. God has judicially shut the nation of the Jews up to disobedience as a nation that he might have mercy upon all. There's a corporate hardening. There's a corporate breaking off of those branches from the tree of salvation. They have all, as a corporate body, been assigned to disobedience, a horrible judgment. They will all be brought to obedience. What a great God that would do such a thing. Why should God do that? They are so obstinate. They are so wicked. They are so rebellious. There's not a touch of anti-Semitism in that statement. But the prophets and God himself denounce the obstinate Jews who would not believe in the harshest terms. Why should God be merciful to them? The same reason he was merciful to many individuals in this room who were full of evil and hatred and ugliness. No explanation except God loved us. And God chose to love them. And as a corporate body, he reacted justly to their apostasy and cast them off in a certain sense, but not absolutely. That same corporate body that he dealt with in wrath, he has chosen, and the gifts of calling and the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, and he'll be merciful to them again. So the first concern in this question is who are his people? Who are these people that are being discussed? And the answer, I believe, is his people here are the Jews as a collective body. Paul is not referring to individuals elect unto salvation or not elect unto salvation. He is referring to the Jews as a corporate body, as a race of people. Now, the second part of the question is, did God cast off his people? We've considered his people. Now, let's look at this phrase, cast off. What is the question, actually? It's about the corporate body of Jews. But what is the question about those Jews? Well, the question is, did he cast them off? It literally means to push away. It is the idea to reject, to repudiate. The question is simple. The question is, did God take this ancient people that he'd loved before the foundations of the world, that he'd chosen above all the other nations of the world, did God take them, and because of their apostasy and rejection of Jesus, did he reject them? Did he repudiate them forever? Now think about that question carefully. Ask yourself some other questions that are similar. Did God ever reject individual Jews? Absolutely. Many individual Jews. And that doesn't need to be proven. Paul goes into that at some length in the first part of chapter 9. Ask yourself another question. Did he ever reject a whole generation of Jews? Yes, he did. He rejected the whole generation of Jews, that wilderness generation. At the time of Paul's writing, he's rejecting that whole generation of Jews and generations of Jews to follow, he says in verse 25, that he indeed rejects. 
indeed rejects, indeed casts them off. Ask another question. Did he ever reject his people in an absolute sense? Did he ever reject all Jews forever? That's the question, and the answer is no. Absolutely no. God is committed to those people. He could not forsake or reject in an absolute manner those people. So much for the question. The answer to that question is given in verses 2 and following. Now, I would like to go over the answer to this very briefly, not because it's unimportant, but because it's very obvious, it's very clear in the passage. Follow quickly. He, he says four things in answer to the question. Did God reject his people? No. Okay, four, four things very quickly. His first statement is simply, God forbid, in verse 1. Literally, may it not be the most emphatic denial that he could use. He's used that denial several times. It's the kind of denial that is appropriate because of the question. The question's so absurd. The question's so unreasonable that there's no response except to be absolutely not. God forbid. It's beyond question. It's like saying, do I have two ears? Well, of course you have two ears. Ask the question today, do you have five ears? It's ridiculous. Could God forsake his people? It's ridiculous. Absolutely not. It is not literally God forbid. It is literally absolutely not. May it never be. It's impossible. So that's his first statement. It's just unthinkable that God could forsake and reject his people. The second statement he makes is in chapter 11, verse 1, the second part. Look what he says. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of, 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 the tribe of Benjamin. The first evidence that he brings to establish his assertion, did God reject his people? Of course not. Look at me. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew of, of obvious heritage. Look at me. I'm a Jew. God did not reject the Jews. Paul himself was a Jew. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of the strictest sense. He was hardened toward Christ. He persecuted Christ and persecuted Christ's church. But God was merciful to him. If God was casting off his people in an absolute sense, Paul would be a primary candidate to be cast off. Paul personified everything that was despicable about the Jews and that he himself criticizes in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Paul was guilty of all those things that he said about unbelieving Jews. Well, if God's going to cast off his people, he surely cast off Paul. He didn't. He not only saved Paul, but he put Paul as an apostle at a highest point of prominence. He was determined to use that converted Jew to bring the gospel unto all the world. Surely no one could say that God had totally cast off the Jews if he would choose a Jew who was so hardened and so reprobate and make him to be a preeminent apostle of his gospel. The third thing that Paul says is in verse 2, God did not cast off his people which he foreknew. Now again, the reference, like in verse 1, is a reference to the nation as a whole. God was always offering himself to this obstinate people, and he would not cast them off. And the reason that it's given here is because he foreknew them. Now, I've already taken the time to read those passages in the book of Deuteronomy. You can go back to those passages and look at others like them. The point is that God loved the nation of Israel. He chose the nation of Israel. He elected the nation of Israel. The word foreknow is only used a few times in the Bible. It refers to, to previous thought is what it literally means. God thought upon them beforehand, before the foundations of the world, before they thought about him, while they had no interest in him, while they weren't even a nation. 
ahead of time, God thought upon them. He gave prior thought to them as compared to any of the other nations of the world. He loved them in a special way. He took them and chose them in a special way. That doesn't mean that, it doesn't at all mean that God chose every member of the Jewish nation to go to heaven. But it does mean that he chose them and gave them special privileges among all the other nations of the world. Could God for, for reject his people whom he foreknew? Of course not. That's the point of that statement in this passage. And then there is the, the last statement that, Paul, that the apostle makes at the end of verse 2 and following. Do you not know what the scripture says in reference to Elijah? And now the fourth statement is, Paul is going to say, God has always saved a remnant, according to election, which is obvious proof that God doesn't reject his people. Even when they apostatize, and even when the nation as a whole is godless, God then goes to, to a remnant and at least saves them. And in that remnant, he maintains the seed of hope for the, na for the nation in the future. And again, I just ask you to look at the passage yourself. He's quoting from, from 1 Kings chapter 19. You remember the situation? Elijah is in the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is apostate. Ahab, the king, his wicked wife, Jezebel, they were terrible pagans. These who were the kings and king and queen over God's people. They hated God. They worshiped false gods. Terrible people. The nation as a whole was worshiping these false gods. Elijah thought he was the only prophet left. Elijah has this confrontation with all the prophets of the false god Baal on Mount Carmel. You may remember the story. He defeats them. He humiliates them. Many of them are killed. Jezebel is so infuriated that he's killed all those priests of hers, the prophets of the god Baal. She says she'll kill him. And he is exhausted, and he becomes frightened, and he runs off, and he complains to God that he is the only one left. God takes him aside, cleans him up, and gives him some food and rest, and just reminds him, I have kept 7,000 prophets that have never bowed the knee to Baal or kissed those false gods. Who do you think you are to say that there's nobody left but you? That was a time of terrible apostasy in the northern kingdom. It was the apex of the northern kingdom's apostasy. And look at verse 5. Paul refers to what I've just briefly given to you, and he says, Even so, then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Just like in that apostasy, when God could have finished with the Israel altogether, he kept a remnant. And Paul is saying, just so now, right now, the nation is apostate. You might think God's done. No, God's got a remnant. Right now, just like back in Elijah's time, God is just as faithful to the nation now as he was to the nation then. And of course, if you think carefully at all about the New Testament, there's ample proof that at this point in the history of the world, there was a great number of Jews that believed. You have the account in Acts chapter 2 of 3,000 Jews believing in a day. Later, 5,000 Jews believed in another day. You have that statement in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem exceedingly and a great company of the priests also believed. There's a remnant in Israel. God had not forsaken his people. Just like he had those 7,000 hidden away in Elijah's day, so now the word of God was multiplying exceedingly throughout Israel. Many were believing. Huge numbers of priests were believing. God hadn't forsaken his people. The nation as a whole was hardened. But he was still dealing with his people. He was still dealing with the nation. There was still a remnant. 
There would always be a remnant. And one day there would be more than a remnant because God was committed to those people. Has God rejected his ancient people? Absolutely not. Paul is an illustration as an individual that he's not rejected his people. God has foreknown them. He couldn't possibly reject them. And finally, this argument. The fact that he's still dealing with a remnant in their apostasy is an evidence that he has not rejected them. He has not absolutely or finally cast them off. I think that it would be inappropriate to go into the other matters that I'd wanted to bring from this passage, perhaps next Lord's Day. I would like to draw your mind in these last few minutes, though, to what is probably the most obvious application of this passage. And that is that God is absolutely faithful to his promises. God is absolutely faithful to his promises. God can be trusted. People stumble. Some people stumble when they read the nature of these promises to Israel. And then they come and some of the texts seem to say God just stopped. God just stopped being faithful. He was so fed up and so justly angry that the promises no longer meant anything. The Apostle Paul didn't share that view of God's commitments and God's promises. God is absolutely faithful to his promises. Those of you who are here on the last Lord's Day evening, I hope, felt something of the power and the wonder of that truth, that God keeps his covenant promises. What Pastor Huffstetler brought to us in that Lord's Day message, there are parts of it I hope will never be forgotten. God is faithful to his covenant promises. In the new covenant, what does God promise in the new covenant? Not any longer dealing with the covenant with Moses, not dealing with that former covenant. In the new covenant, what does God promise? He promises to forgive all of our sins. He promises that he will give us everlasting life. He promises that we will have communion with him and with his son. He promises to give us grace in the present life. He not only promises that in the last day we'll enter into heaven, but he promises that in the present time there will be grace sufficient for us, that we have an open and bold access under the throne of grace to which we are to come for help and for grace in time of need. He has promised, according to John chapter 6 and verse 37, that he will in no wise cast out. And let the phrase ring in your ear in connection to the passage in, Hebrews, in Romans chapter 11. Could God cast out his people? Absolutely not. What relevance would John 6 have if you didn't understand the passage this way? Jesus says he will in no wise cast out any that come unto him. Our place in that covenant is fixed because he will not cast out any who come to him. That's what he promises. Now, what does he require? He doesn't promise that to anybody. What does he require? Well, this passage in Romans chapter 10 is very clear, very sharp, very distinct as to what he requires. It's simple, but it's also demanding. What does he require? Two things. He requires, if you would have all these covenant promises, if 
if you can liken the picture to a marriage that God as the groom stands out and offers all the benefits of the marriage, what do you have to give to get into this marriage? You have to make a covenant with him. You have to vow something to him. Two things you have to do. You have to, he says in Romans chapter 10, you have to believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You can't be content with just light superficial thoughts about religious stuff. You've got to believe in a supernatural God who sent his only son into the world who died on the cross and that God raised him from the dead and he's presently in heaven living and ruling and reigning. And one other thing he says. He says you must confess openly. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord in an absolute sense and in a personal sense that he is your Lord. The promise is that anyone who does so believe and so openly and publicly confesses Jesus as Lord with mouth, with life, with baptism, with holy conduct, that person is guaranteed a place in the covenant. God will be faithful to every covenant promise that he has made. Now, that should give the people of God great security. That they're trivial, and I say trivial only in a certain sense, I should retract the word, that their shameful inconsistencies do not cast them out of God's promises. Their struggle with, in, with remaining sin, which makes them sometimes act like non-Christians, according to Romans chapter 7, does not cast them out of the promises. God's commitments are certain, and we must take great confidence in that. But I do fear that with all the certainty that those promises should give to us, that some people will misunderstand them. If it's obvious that you're in God's covenant, if it's obvious that your faith is real, your submission to Jesus' lordship is public, you're baptized, you're doing everything you can to obey him, it's just obvious to anyone who knows you that you're trying to live under Jesus as your lord. If you're in that situation, then the promises are sure. If you're not in that situation, though, you should not be asking, am I safe? You should be asking a different question. You shouldn't be asking, can I be kicked out of the covenant? You should be asking, am I in the covenant? If you're in, there's no question you'll never be kicked out. But some of you, I fear, will take the, all the precious securities that the people of God should enjoy and you'll abuse them to yourself. The only way that you can know whether you're in this gracious covenant is whether those two things are true of you. That you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead. That's not a Sunday school story to you. You believe that. You base your hope on that. You know that you will raise from the dead because he is raised from the dead. You know that you will go to heaven because he is in heaven, raised, ever living, making prayers for you. You believe that. And the other thing that is necessary if you're to know that you're in the covenant is it's just as clear as crystal. Jesus is your confessed Lord. You fail him a thousand times, but it is nonetheless your clear, obvious confession with word, with baptism, with life. Jesus is my Lord. I am living for him. Now, don't take comfort from the certainty of God's promises unless those two things are true. If those two things are true, then bathe yourself in the comforts. And if you find yourself in the wintertime of your soul in the midst of some inconsistencies, then build yourself up on these, on these promises. God will not cast you off. He's faithful. But keep coming back, some of you, to the more fundamental question, am I in that covenant? Are these two things true of me?
If they're not, if they're not, then you must remember that God is also faithful to his curses. In the same way that he's faithful to his promised blessing, so he's faithful to his promised cursing. That those who will not believe the gospel, those who will not love the Lord Jesus Christ, those who will not submit to his lordship, those persons will be damned to hell. It won't matter how religious you are. It won't matter how moral you are. God is faithful to all of his promises. You say, well, Pastor Fisher, it's an awfully fine line. How do I know I'm in such an inconsistent state? How do I know if I'm really in the covenant and should take security from the promises? Or maybe I never was in the covenant. It's just now coming out. How do I know? Well, this may sound like simple advice, but I'd encourage you to stop trying to figure it out. I'd encourage you to take the posture of a needy sinner. I'd encourage you to take the posture of one who's just beset with sin and guilt, doesn't know his state, and take all the promises of gospel invitation as your own and come again. Take the basic promise, come unto me. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. Take that as you might have taken it before. Don't live your life wondering whether I'm in that covenant or not. Forget the question. And come back to this question. Do I want to be a Christian? Yes. Are the gospel promises for me? Yes. Will I take them? That's the question. Don't doubt any longer. God is faithful. He's offered that if you just come to him, he'd forgive you. Come. Believe that he's faithful. He'll take you. He's also faithful that if you will not come to him in the last day, he will cast you from his presence and you will live apart from him forever as you have chosen to live apart from him right now today. Oh, there's so much more from this passage, but may we go away today with this confidence God is faithful to his promise. Can he cast, can he reject his people? It's even foolish to think of it. Absolutely not. Let us stand and pray together. Our God and Father, we bow before you and before the texts of your word, and we acknowledge to you that our understanding of the scriptures is full of imperfections, and we plead with you that in this passage, which has been difficult to many, that you would please help us to have clear and right understanding. We do thank you that you are eternally faithful and fully worthy of all of our trust. It is amazing to you how you deal with masses of people, how you respond to the unbelief and the hardening and how you stir one group up to provoke the other to come to you, and then the same group is used to provoke the first group to come to you. We fall before that and say that we magnify your wisdom and, and fall before you with simple, with no questioning of you and without controverting your justice and simply admire you for the greatness of your mind, the greatness of your ways. And we pray that you would please help us to understand what you have revealed more and more clearly. Again, we do thank you for the certainty of your promises. We base our lives on those promises. We are not ashamed to say that the promises which are recorded in the scriptures we take as the only foundation for our hope of everlasting life. Those very texts are what we base our whole life upon in terms of so many practical things, in terms of the way that many seek employment and in terms of the way that many make ethical decisions. 
We base all of that on the promises of your word and the veracity of yourself in those statements. Oh, God, we pray, in the light of the fact that the veracity of your word has such a foundational part in our existence, we pray that you greatly bolster our confidence in your faithfulness and veracity. Thank you for this text in your word. Thank you for the privilege of gathering together this morning. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.